As we've been making our way through the book of Revelation, several weeks ago we were in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 where we have this unique and powerful heavenly scene. John was taken up by the Spirit into heaven. And what he saw there around the throne of God was an amazing scene. Not only were there the cherubim, not only were there the uh, 24 elders surrounding the throne of God and all this remarkable scene, But in the hand of God, sitting upon the throne, was a scroll. We're not told exactly what that scroll is, but it has something to do with the disposition of human affairs, with the ending of of God's plan for the ages, with the unfolding of God's plan. And there was nobody found worthy to open that scroll until the Lamb of God. Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world came and he was found worthy to come and to take that scroll from the hand of the one who sits on the throne, God the Father and God the Son took that scroll. And as he took that scroll, it was sealed with seven seals. This was in chapter six that we saw one by one, the seals were peeled off. And once all of the seven seals were taken off of the scroll, then the scroll could be opened and you could see what the, well, how the story is going to end, basically. And so with great anticipation, we worked our way through Revelation chapter six. One seal came off and the next seal came off. And each seal as it came off was accompanied with calamity and catastrophe upon the earth. Maybe you've heard the the figure of speech, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Well, that's the first four seals, Uh, a a dictator and then war and famine and, and death and destruction coming. Then we were very much filled with anticipation at the end of the chapter because the sixth seal got loosed. And that means there's only one left, one more seal left. And then we're going to see what's in the scroll and it's going to show us. But then all of a sudden in chapter seven, it's like somebody hit the pause button. A little disappointing, frankly. We wanted to get to that seventh seal. But last week we saw in chapter seven how God spoke to us about the 144,000 in this great uh, army of evangelists, so to speak, that will be doing spectacular ministry during the time of the great tribulation, which was described by those uh, seven seals that were being loosed. And then we saw this great multitude of martyrs before the throne of God, God's people slain during that time of the great tribulation. But we're done with that. Now we come to chapter 8, and we're pumped up because we're going to see the seventh seal loose, and we're going to see what's on that scroll. And the scroll, it tells us the end of the story. Well, kind of. Take a look here, verse 1. And when he opened the seventh seal, right, like we're on the edge of our seat now, here it comes. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Is that a little bit of a letdown? Now, again, the sealed scroll was introduced way back in Revelation chapter 5, but now the seventh seal is loosed, and this pause between the sixth and the seventh is emphasized by the silence in heaven for about half an hour. One thing we know about heaven is that it's not a particularly silent place. Whenever anybody goes to heaven in the Bible or has a heavenly vision, it's filled with worship. It's filled with adoration and praise of God. And so it's unusual for us to see it as silence. It's striking. Some people have described this silence as breathing space, or perhaps the angels being silent so the prayers of the saints can be heard, or maybe even the cry of the martyrs as it went up in Revelation chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 7. But most likely, this silence in heaven demonstrates a sober, 
awestruck silence at the judgments that are to come, now that the seals are off, and now that the scroll can be opened, now that we're going to see the dispensation, the, 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 the disposition, I should say, of human affairs, it's a sobering thing. So there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, a half hour silence, is that long or not? Well, it all depends on the context, doesn't it? You know, you think you could go any part of the day, half hour, not speaking to anybody, just silent. But then again, if the preacher were to stop his sermon and remain silent for about 10 minutes, everybody would feel awfully awkward, wouldn't they? I mean, after about 30 seconds, everybody would be fidgeting. And they'd be wondering what's going on. I mean, it would seem like an eternity. Just let's all be quiet for that long and look at each other. Now, since heaven is a place of constant praise and worship to God, silence for about half an hour is a long time. By the way, if I could, and it's easier to ask uh, forgiveness later than permission ahead of time, I'll say a little joke that goes along with it. So you can file away in your, your catalog of Bible jokes. They say this is the passage of Scripture that proves that there are no women in heaven because there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So about half of us thought that was funny, I think. And uh, that's for your catalog of Bible jokes, not that I personally endorse that joke. The humor from this pulpit does not necessarily reflect the opinions of the preacher nor of the management of this church. Verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now, according to Jewish tradition, there are seven angels who stand in God's presence. And apparently, there's something according to There's something accurate about this. Now, these aren't the cherubim. There's four of them surrounding the throne of God. These are seven specially designated angels, angels of his presence. And to them were given seven trumpets. Now, repeatedly in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, trumpets were used for several different purposes. They oftentimes sounded the alarm for war. Sometimes they were used to uh, gather the troops or to throw the enemy into panic. Uh, Sometimes they would just call an assembly of God's people apart from warfare. But these seven trumpets will serve as God's battle alarm during the Great Tribulation. Take a look at it here, verse 3. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Captivating image, isn't it? You have another angel, not one of the seven, not one of the ones that perhaps spoke to John just previously before. You have another angel coming along. Some people say this angel is Jesus. Now again, that shouldn't upset you too much that somebody called an angel in the Bible would actually be Jesus Christ because we remember, first of all, what the word angel simply means. It means messenger, And at times, Jesus certainly is God's greatest messenger. We also remember from the pages of the Old Testament, sometimes the angel of the Lord is clearly identified to us as the second person of the Trinity appearing on earth before his incarnation in Bethlehem. It's Jesus sort of in a preview kind of form. 
So it certainly could be Jesus. I don't think it's particularly necessary that it be Jesus, according to the context, but some commentators believe that this is Jesus, this other angel. I think if there's any good point for saying that it's not Jesus, is to understand that in the Greek language, which was a very precise ancient language, this ancient Greek language that the Bible was written in, they really had two words for another. One meant another of the same kind, and the other meant another of a different kind. Well, the word used here is another of, a, of the same kind. So it's an angel, seemingly another of the same kind of angels that we've seen before. So all in all, I'd have to say that this is probably a high-ranking, though anonymous, angel. But what does he do? He comes up to this golden altar. He stands with a golden censer at the altar. And then he gathers together the incense, together with the coals that are upon that altar. And together you can see this golden censer. And you know what a censer is. It's kind of a, of a, of a metal pot with holes in it. And you would put coals in it and then incense upon it. And you can just see the, the smoke of the incense billowing out of this censer. And that's always a marvelous picture in the Bible of the prayers of the saints. And at the very opening of the seventh seal, the, the prayers of God's people come before the Lord God. They're setting in motion what's going to follow after this. And as the the prayers of God's people ascend up before him like like the sweet-smelling incense coming out of that censer, what does the angel do? He grabs that censer uh, full of, of fire and the hot coals and the incense pouring out of it, and he throws it to the earth. Isn't that a vivid image? As it goes to the earth, if you notice, verse 5, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. You see the connection with the prayers of God's people here, right? Because that's commonly a picture of incense in the Bible. As God's people pray for the resolution of all things, their prayers are touched by the fire from the altar in heaven, and they're thrown back down to earth. You see, all the things that we're going to see tonight in Revelation chapters 8 and 9, all these things concerning this tremendous judgment, uh, might I say a catastrophic judgment, a a judgment that we're going to look at tonight and say this is ghastly. I want you to know that you, as a child of God, you have prayed for this to happen. I never prayed for it to happen. Yes, you have. How about every time you prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're praying for a righteous resolution of all things. You're praying for the righteous establishment of the kingdom of God on this earth. And this is how it has to happen, friends. You know, sometimes we wonder, why all the judgment? Why can't God just come and say, well, you know, your turn's over, now it's my turn. Time out for all the bad people. Why the judgment? It's because His righteousness demands it. And every time we've prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, we've essentially prayed for this very thing to happen that we're going to see in these two chapters tonight. And so here we see it in verse 6. The seven angels who's had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And we sort of pause and go, wait a minute here. I thought the story was over when we got through with the seven seals, right? Now you're saying that the seven seals feed into seven trumpets? Yeah. I got news for you. Seven trumpets feed into seven bowls later on. (laughs) There's a lot of different debate among commentators on the book of Revelation and 
and, and there, there's some valid debate, valid difference of opinion on this, on how the seals and the trumpets and then later on the bowl judgments all relate to each other. Some people believe that they're poetic and repetitive, and John describes the same events with different words and details. In other words, the, the seal judgments and, and the, the, the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, they all happen together He's just telling the story, then rewinding and telling it again, and rewinding and telling it again, and filling in different details. I honestly believe that that's the case here. First of all, that's a very Hebraic way of writing. And this is a a book deeply rooted in the Hebrew understanding of the Old Testament. Secondly, if you notice something, and if you just want to turn back here to Revelation chapter 6, take a look at it here, uh, beginning at verse 12. This is the sixth seal. And it says, And I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as the fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, and, and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the face of the and from the wrath of the lamb for great for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand now, I don't know about you but when i read that it sounds like jesus is returning right then doesn't it these cosmic phenomenon are associated with the very 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 end part of the great tribulation And it shows people hiding from the returning Lord. This leads me to believe that that the the seals give a a description of the great tribulation. And now he's going to rewind and do it again, describing it through the trumpets. And then he's going to rewind later and do it again through the bowls. Again, this is a very common Hebraic way of of giving emphasis and, and filling in detail. But although we have to admit another thing. John is writing... And bringing this report from eternity. So it's difficult to assign a chronological and a sequential element to these judgments. I think the most important thing that we can realize about these judgments is that they're real. He's not just writing poetry. He's not just trying to find a way to say, it's going to get really icky before the end. These are real things that will happen. And yes, there is some figurative language used. Yes, there is some hyperbole and there's some simile used. Yes, yes, literary devices are used in this, but it describes something real and that will come upon the earth. Look at it here, verse 7, the first trumpet. The first trumpet sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now when it says, Hail and fire mingled with blood. First of all, it reminds us, because almost the same terminology is used of one of the plagues of Egypt that came upon them during the Exodus. But the blood here may indicate either the color of the hail, it's reddish in appearance, or the result of the phenomenon. In other words, there's just a bloody carnage all over the world as a result of this hail and fire falling from heaven. Friends, we... One way or another, we should understand this very straightforwardly without escaping into creative symbolism. Oh, you should read the commentators. Believe me, don't. 
There's hardly any book of the Bible more discouraging to wade through the commentaries on than the book of Revelation. Because you just find the most fantastic interpretations of how things you know, were fulfilled in history. And, and, and many people suppose, well, this was really the, uh, this was the, the advance of the barbarians against Rome. Oh, I had three or four commentaries that tried to explain that. The barbarian nations, the, the Goths and the Vandals from northern Europe sweeping down upon Rome, and this was the overthrow of Rome. I mean, look, do you see the overthrow of Rome in verse 7? It's just absolute fancy, absolute uh, imagination. I love what one commentator, Joseph Seiss, says of this. He says, the truth is, if earth, trees, and grass do not mean earth, trees, and grass, then no man can tell what they mean. Letting go the literal signification of the record, we launch out upon an endless sea of sheer conjecture. So what do I believe this is? It's some kind of fiery hail coming from the heavens, coming down upon the earth during the great tribulation that will start huge brush fires all over the world, and it'll result with up to a third of the trees and the green grass of the earth being burnt up. Friends, that is massive ecological devastation upon this earth, and it's going to happen during the great tribulation. Many people wonder how this will happen. Fiery hail from the sky. Nuclear war. Napalm bombs. uh, Neutron bombs. All sorts of armaments. Maybe. Who knows? It could be something. Could be some use of technology. It very well could be. But don't get the idea that this is really man destroying himself. Even if it's a man who pushes the button on something like this, it's all under the management of God. God brings the judgment. God isn't a passive bystander in this. This isn't nature taking its course. The trumpet sounded and these things went forth. God may use whatever method he desires to bring judgment. But we're going to see before the great tribulation is over, the people on earth know that these events are from God. Let's look at the second trumpet, verse 8. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Again, it's something like a great mountain. John carefully says that it's not an actual mountain, right? He says it's something like a great mountain. It's not like Mount Kilimanjaro is going to be lifted up and thrown into the sea. No, that's not it. But it's some blazing mass as large as a mountain. Because of this, a third of the sea became blood. This disaster is a cataclysm, perhaps a meteor that crashes into the sea and results in great oceanic upheaval with all of its residual pollution. Researchers say that this sort of phenomenon has happened many times before in the history of the Earth. They look on the ocean floor and they see these huge crater holes from from a meteor striking. And some people say that uh, uh, ecological disasters previously in the history of the Earth have been due to this kind of thing. Well, we know this, that here, whatever exactly it is that plunges into the sea, it, it, it results in a third of the living creatures of the sea dying and a third of the ships being destroyed. And we don't know exactly what the connection of is with the third of the sea becoming blood. It could either be the cause or the effect of the widespread death in the oceans. 
One other thing, this may not mean all the seas of the earth, although it may extend to all the seas, but when the Bible refers to the sea, first and foremost, it has in mind the Mediterranean Sea. If somebody were to pin down and say, well, what ocean is this going to fall in? I'd say, well, it's probably going to be the Mediterranean Sea, because that's what they thought of as the sea in, in the days of the Bible. Now, again, let me just go over with you one more time the tendency that many commentators and many approaches to the book of Revelation has to symbolize everything. For example, it's common to take this great mountain as a symbol uh, for a nation or nations that will be judged in the future. And they say, well, that's really what it's talking about, a nation being judged. Now, it's true that mountains are sometimes used as figures of governments or nations in the Bible. Uh, Jeremiah 51 is a good example of this, if you want to make note of it in the margin of your Bible. But in this context, the symbol doesn't make any sense at all. What does it mean that the great mountain is burning with fire? And what does it mean that it was thrown into the sea? And what's the sea symbolically? I mean, if the mountain is symbolically the government, then what's symbolically the sea? And then what are symbolically the living creatures in the sea? For heaven's sakes, who are the sailors and the ships on the sea? If, you see, if you extend it out and just say, well, if this is a symbol, can we look for a little bit of consistency? You can't find any consistency. All of these questions make us say that the best solution is to see this as some literal mass of land, probably a meteor or an asteroid, falling into the sea and bringing ecological disaster. The third trumpet. Verse 10, then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of this star is Wormwood and a third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Now again, this great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. We may easily associate this with a comet or a meteor crashing into the earth and bringing ecological disaster. God may have something else in mind, but we really don't know. I mean, one solution makes as much sense as another. But it says the name of the star is Wormwood. Wormwood is a very bitter substance, and it's proverbial for bitterness and sadness. It, It makes the fresh waters of the world, or at least a large number of them, undrinkable. You notice that the proportion of ecological disaster stays the same. A third of the trees, a third of the grass, a third of the sea creatures, a third of the uh, uh, ships on the sea, a, a third of the rivers and springs of water. We'll make note of that again in just a moment. Look at it here, the fourth trumpet, verse 12. We're moving through the trumpets very rapidly, aren't we? One blast and another blast. Here we go, the fourth one. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now the result of this fourth trumpet is that a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. It's not like the brightness meter on the sun is turned down by one-third. It means that one-third of the day and one-third of the night is plunged into absolute darkness. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 24. He said, in those days of the great tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. This would be an eerie, terrifying time on planet Earth, this time when 
the uh, entire earth knows the, the judgment of God. And look at what this angel says as it flies through the midst of heaven. By the way, in verse 13, some of your translations may have eagle instead of angel flying through the midst of heaven. The ancient Greek word for angel and the ancient Greek word for eagle are very similar in its spelling. And actually, it's a pretty tough nut to crack uh, textually whether or not what John wrote originally was angel or eagle. I don't know if it really matters. (laughs) One way or the other, the message is going to get out to the world. And look at what the message is uh, to the world here. The message is simply, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet. I mean, that's awesome to think that, listen, as bad as these first four were, you haven't seen anything yet. The bad ones are yet to come. You know, soberly, soberly makes us think of the words that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, that this period that we know is the Great Tribulation, he said that there would be no worse time in human history than this period of time. And reading a text like this, we understand it. I want you to see that these first four trumpets reveal the severity of God's judgment. He's attacking all the ordinary means of sustenance, food and water, and all the ordinary means of comfort and knowledge. You know, we live by the light and the darkness and the regular rhythm of day and night. Those things are going to be totally disrupted. Man has come to see those aspects of the created order as impersonal, perpetual forces. You know, why does it get light at a certain time and dark at another time? And why? And scientists will tell you, well, it's because of the rotation of the sun, uh, the earth around the sun and the earth's axis and how it turns and depending on the season. They can all explain it out and it's to their credit that they've done this. But after a while, the scientist begins to look at all that and look at it just as, as vague, impersonal forces. As if the figure's been used before of the, of the, the clockmaker God where he just kind of set up the universe as a great big clock or a watch, and he wound it up, and then he walked away from it. And it's all just running. Well, let me tell you, during this great tribulation, God's going to get in the mechanism of that clock, and he's going to disrupt a few things. So you rely on day and night. You rely on the, the grass of the earth. You rely on the fresh waters and, and the things in the ocean. Let me show you how easy it is for me to disrupt this. You think that things move along according to unchanging laws of nature. God says there are no such thing as unchanging laws of nature. He is the only unchanging one. And he's going to display this during the, the great tribulation. And might I say as well, friends, that in each one of these trumpets, we see God's mercy. Because we saw that familiar pattern, one-third, one-third, one-third. And one-third means that twice as much is preserved as what is destroyed. Right now, God spares more than he smites. And uh, that shows his mercy, doesn't it? Now look at chapter 9 here. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven and to the earth. And to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Well, here, this fifth angel is sounding a trumpet, and the seven seals are followed thematically, if not chronologically, by these seven trumpets. And then they come, and here's the fifth one coming. And the fifth one comes, and it's a star falling from heaven. Now, the context shows us that it's clearly a person that's being spoken of here. 
Because look, it says in verse 1, and to him. In other words, the star is a figure of a person. And the verb tense where it says, I saw a star fallen from heaven. Not falling, but fallen. In other words, it's referring to something that's already happened. So who is this star? All sorts of suggestions have been offered. Some people have said it's Nero. Some said it's fallen angel, an evil spirit, Satan. Some people said it's the word of God or a good angel. Some people said it's Jesus himself. Well, I have to say that in the context, this star is seen as an angel. That's the best idea here. Stars are frequently used in the scriptures as, as emblems or as pictures or as representations of angels. And this star was fallen from heaven. Now, who does that remind you of? Well, Satan. Now, I have to say, there's something uncomfortable for this in me, in verse 1, with seeing this as Satan. Now, I'll explain it to you in a moment, but I have to say, all in all, if I had to say that this star, this, this star given this was, I believe it to be Satan or another high-ranking evil angel, another high-ranking fallen angel, probably Satan himself. What bothers me about this is at the end of verse 1, it says, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. I don't like the idea of Satan having any keys, personally. <laughs> and not having any keys to the bottomless pit. You know, there's a really mistaken notion that people have. You, you see it especially in the popular culture, don't you? It's the idea that Satan is the lord of hell. That he runs the place. You know, they, like he's the top dog there and, you know, everything works under his administration and, and all these, other, he's sort of the Lord of hell. Friends, that is so far away from the biblical idea, it just makes me want to scream when I see it. The biblical idea, Satan's is the absolute greatest victim of hell. He's a prisoner, not currently, but he will be. And in no way does he run the place. That's nonsense. Do you know who runs hell? God. God runs hell. It's a place of his righteous judgment. So it makes me a little nervous seeing anybody give Satan a key to the bottomless pit. But it makes me understand something at the same time. And I still believe that in all likelihood, this does refer to Satan himself. Notice, first of all, that when he does this and when he uses this key, he's just serving God's purpose. He's just doing what God wants him to do. Now, I'm not saying that it was Satan's motive to do God's purpose. He's probably, oh man, I've been waiting for this key for a long time. I'm going to go open up this bottomless pit. Yes, that's what I'm going to do. And God says, yes, right in the time I wanted you to do it. Thank you very much. I mean, that's the purpose here. Well, what is the bottomless pit? Well, we don't know what it is or where it is. The Bible tells us that there's a place called the Abyssos. And, and it's a prison for certain demons. And it's probably the same place as the bottomless pit mentioned here. What it is, is it's a prison for certain demonic spirits that God has said, you're not going to work your destruction on this earth anymore. I'm going to lock you up. Isn't that comforting to know that God has taken the worst offenders among demonic spirits and locked them up? That's very comforting. But friends, during the Great Tribulation, it's going to give Satan the key, and Satan's going to open it up. And look what happens here. Verse 2, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as scorpions of the earth have power, and they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, 
but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion. When it strikes a man, in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. Now, friends, these bizarre locusts described for us in these verses are not obviously natural locusts. Natural locusts don't avoid grass and go after men. Then why are they called locusts? They're called locusts because it's a vivid visual representation of these hordes of demonic spirits loosed upon the earth. The idea is simply that as part of the great tribulation, as part of that judgment, God will allow these demonic hordes previously imprisoned to descend upon the earth like a swarm of destructive locusts. Oh, you go to the commentators. These are suggestions. They said they're heretics, they're Muslims, they're Turks, they're Saracens, they're Jesuits, they're monks, or they're Protestants. One commentator said that the star fallen from heaven to open the bottomless pit was Martin Luther himself. Well, friends, obviously not. These locusts, symbolically, of course, are are very real demonic spirits. And those who have the seal of God on their foreheads, we know that to be the 144,000, perhaps more, they're protected, but none other are. This is an inescapable judgment of God, Friends, if a person is on the earth during this great tribulation, and if they do not have the seal of God on their forehead, they will be tormented by these demonic spirits. And how bad will the torment be? It'll be so bad in verse 6 that in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Death will offer no escape from this prolonged torture. And the power of these locust-like demonic spirits is described to be like the power of scorpions and the bite of a scorpion. Though it's rarely fatal, except in smaller children, it's extremely painful. And that's what will happen when these demonic spirits descend upon the earth in this time of the Great Tribulation. These tormented ones will actually want to die. They'll long for, die, for death. They'll look at death as an escape. But they will not be able to die. Friends, that will be a horrific time upon planet Earth. You know, the idea of death as an escape is a terrible demonic deception. I can't think of a more vivid example of this than something I read in the news earlier this year where it spoke about the infamous murderers in Littleton, Colorado. Those two young men, and they made a chilling home movie before their killing spree. Eric Harris and Dylan Claybolt, they left behind a videotaped document spelling out their motivation. And in the very last segment of the tape, shot the very morning of the murders, Harris and Klebold are dressed in, in, in camouflage fatigues, and they say that they're ready for our little judgment day. Then Klebold, he looks tense, and he says goodbye to his parents. And listen to what he said from this tape. He said, I don't like life too much. Just know that I'm going to a better place than here. I can't think of a more shocking deception. That on the very day you will commit terrible murders to believe you're going to go to a better place. Friends, there was no better place for that young man to go to. 
There was no escape in death for Eric Harris or Dylan Klebold. They went literally from the frying pan to the fire. That's why the Bible says, now is the time of repentance. Now is the time to escape from your sin. Now is the time to be restored. Death is no escape for those who reject God. Verse 7 describes for us the appearance of these locusts. It says, And the shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. And they had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. And they had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. There's been many attempts to draw this out or to sort of give a visual depiction of this. Obviously, that's not John's intention. Whatever he saw, he expresses it in terms of just such complete horror, such complete, uh, I don't know what to say. It's just complete disgust at these creatures, this fear and loathing he has of them. There's no question we don't know exactly exactly what this description means. But it just describes the horrific appearance and character and nature of these demonic spirits as they're loosed upon the earth. Verse 11 says, And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. By the way, this is another indication that these creatures are not literal locusts, Did you know that the Bible tells us that the locusts have no king? Proverbs 30, 27 says, The locusts have no king, and yet they all advance in ranks. So if these locusts have a king, they're not literal locusts. They're locust-like creatures swarming in their sense of this company of demonic spirits coming to torment the earth. But they have this leader this angel of the bottomless pit. And that's what makes us associate this angel described in verse 1 as probably being Satan. Because this one has the name as Abaddon, which means destruction or, or torment. And Apollyon means the same thing in Greek. Now look at verse 12. One woe is past. Behold, two more woes are coming after these things. And that put a lump in your throat? Picture yourself on the earth, left behind after the rapture of the church. And you're reading of these things. You, you see how the beginnings of them are coming to pass. You hear about great ecological disaster. and You feel the pinch and the pain of it in your own life. And you read about this demonic horde coming upon the earth. And then you read this, that there's still more to come. Look at it here, verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the 
altar, the golden altar, was the altar of incense. That's where we were before with the incense censer that was cast to the earth at the beginning of the, the trumpet sounding. And now the four horns of the golden altar, there they are that's speaking forth, the place where atoning blood was re- applied. And so we have this context of prayer because it's the altar of incense. We have the context of atonement because the atoning blood was applied to the horns of the altar. And in the midst of that, the sixth angel sounds its trumpet and says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, they are released. We don't know exactly what for, but they, they're released to do what? To kill? It says right there in verse 14, it's more than we want to know, I should say. Verse 15 says, I should say, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Think about it, friends. These angels going forth, these no doubt evil angels, they're angelic beings, but they're demonic angels in more likelihood. They have a limited sphere of activity. They kill a third of mankind. Friends, do you, do you realize that's over a billion people? And look at how they do it here, verse 16. This is the army that's led by these angels. Now, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for the power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do, their har- they do harm. It's amazing. An army of 200 million horsemen. Again, one of the more interesting places of the book of Revelation, people, well, literal, symbolic, 200 million. It's a huge number, a huge number for an army. We saw the character of this army. It's a weird, grotesque description. It's a powerful picture of horror, destruction, and demonic association. Some people believe this describes modern mechanized warfare in the only kind of terms that John could come up with, and so he's describing it best they can. But I'll give you my understanding. I don't believe this describes a human army at all. And let me give you the reason why. First of all, a human army of this size has never been seen. Never. The total size of all armies on both sides during the Second World War was only 70 million. This is 200 million soldiers. Now, in 1965, China claimed to have an army and a militia of 200 million people. That claim was doubted by many, but it's potentially true in a country of a billion people. But even if such an army was assembled, and even if it marched towards the West, it's hard, not impossible, but it's hard to see this army killing a billion or more people. That's a third of mankind. I think the safest interpretation is to see this as a literal 200 million strong army, but again, a demonic army invading earth. 
And this continues the idea of the, the demonic army that's continued on in other places. I want you to notice something about this, that this army is associated with the great river Euphrates. Now, the Euphrates was a landmark of ancient Babylon, and it was the frontier of Israel's land as fully promised by God. But the Euphrates has an infamous history in the history of the Bible. Euphrates is associated with the first sin, with the first murder, with the first organized revolt against God, the first war confederation, and the first dictatorship, all in the book of Genesis in the first eight chapters, or excuse me, the first ten chapters, are referenced by the river Euphrates. So, in the midst of this terrible destruction, and it's a tough point to call. Some people believe it's a literal human army. Some people believe it's a literal demonic army. I think the important thing to see is that it's a literal army coming to bring great judgment upon the earth in the great tribulation. But look here, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons, and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Isn't that staggering? All this horrific judgment. And the majority of mankind does not repent. Now, we do know that there will be a sizable number of people who are saved during this time of great tribulation, but not the majority. The majority of people will continue to reject Christ. They'll continue with their business as usual sort of way. They're going to continue to worship their idols, their demons, their their things described here in these verses, the idols of gold, silver, brass, and stone, and wood. How can this happen? How can when, when there's such amazing calamity coming upon the earth, how can they just return back and worship their old things? You know, it's amazing how quickly things can return to normal after a calamity. Remember after the Northridge earthquake many years ago? A lot of people getting right with God then. It's amazing how quickly things return to normal, right? Normal in the bad sense, really. We're so quick to forget God's lessons, even the lessons that come in judgment. But let's remember this, friends. The Bible tells us that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Isn't that it? It's not the judgment of God primarily that leads people to repentance. It's his kindness. And so if you've been waiting for some kind of judgment, some kind of warning sign, a shot across the bow from heaven, to make you get right with him. Friends, don't wait. I don't think there's shots across the bow very often. And God's, he's pretty much sinking the ship. And the bottom line is, respect God's kindness. Get right, walk right with him today. And as Jesus said in the Gospels, count yourself worthy to escape these things. I trust that we will. I trust that believers won't even be here for this because, friends, God will take us out of this horrific wrath that he's going to bring upon the earth. Not because we are worthy of it, but because God won't pour out his wrath on his people. Just as he did in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. He took his righteous people out and then the judgment came. Just as he did in the case of Noah and the ark. He delivered the righteous and then the judgment came. That's how we do it on the earth in those days. Lord, help us to escape these things. Now, we finished up seven trumpets, six trumpets. You're ready for the seventh, aren't you? It's not coming. 
we had six seals and then a pause. Now we got six trumpets and then a pause. We'll get to the seven trumpets and then the seven bowls after that in a little while, but next time we see great stuff in Revelation chapter 10 and 11 for next week. Let's pray and ask the Lord to confirm all this to our hearts. Father, it's a staggering. It's horrible, Lord, to read and to think about the, the truth of these things as they're going to come upon the earth. Makes us want to be right with you now, Lord. And give us a passion, Lord, to share the love and the kindness of Jesus Christ with other people. Lord, we don't want to have the attitude, well, we're going to escape these things, so who cares about anybody else? No. God, we do care. We want many others. We want to fill up the fullness of your work on this earth before you take your church home and, and bring these things described in the seals and the trumpets upon the earth. So we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and prepare us for your coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.